to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and I know it's been a while, but I'm really glad that you are joining for another duet episode. So I'm going to just make one announcement, and then we'll get on to the show. It might be a little long-winded, but it's super important to me. Um, I wrote a little bit about this in the Kintsugi Therapist Collective newsletter. If you want to um, join that, you can go to our website at kintsugitherapistcollective.com, or you can DM me on Instagram, and I'll get you signed up. Um, So... Recently, Onyx, my friend and the co-director at Kintsugi Therapist Collective, which is also uh, goes by KTC, shared a beautiful book with me, Kate Johnson's Radical Friendship, Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World. After reading partway through, it became clear that KTC is an embodiment of radical friendship. It is a space that offers opportunities to befriend the messy parts of ourselves in a warm, supportive sanctuary community. It's also a community that is committed to tending to and connecting care workers who are deeply impacted by sustained efforts to hold space for collective suffering and personal grief. There's a lot to learn in this book and in our collective experiment that is KTC. We are really excited to expand our offerings and grow our community, centering the care needs of therapists and other aligned care workers in private practice during these recent years of intense struggle. KTC is currently enrolling our year-long embodied private practice cohort number three. The deadline to apply is February 15th, and we have created a waitlist for our first two cohorts, so we encourage you to apply soon. KTC's Embodied Private Practice Cohort is a year-long mentorship for care workers who are beginning or revisioning private practice with a focus on embodiment and sustainability. We encourage therapists, nurse practitioners, dietitians, acupuncturists, and other somatic practitioners to apply. Combining reality-based, capacity-conscious, clinical, and business consultation, mentorship will focus on the ways that therapists and care workers can be nurtured by clinical practice, avoid burnout, and commit to sustainability, self-care, and healing. A primary intention of our admissions process is supporting the building of a community that is representative of diverse perspectives of experience and clinical practice. KTC is committed to ensuring that our next embodied private practice cohort maintains this level of racial and intersectional diversity that has made our initial cohorts a space of security, resonance, and deep connection. So for me, it's been really transformative to witness the depth of connection that happens over this year-long program. The need for more substantive support for care workers is so great, and our collective members are so appreciative to be having honest conversations about how profoundly challenging and complex their work is. A member of our second year-long cohort had this to say about being part of the private practice cohort. Participating in KTC has been nourishing and transformational. To experience a group environment that genuinely encourages me to honor my limits and help me meet my needs, that is curious and understanding rather than punitive, and that supports me in bringing all of my parts to this work. We love a good testimonial. We are also really appreciative and value word of mouth 
through our ever-expanding network. So please consider sharing the good news of what we are offering with someone you know who might benefit from participation. We really appreciate your ongoing support as we grow this business, and we hope that our collective is a benefit to many. So just to simplify all of that, you have until February 15th to apply to KTC's Embodied Private Practice Cohort. It is a gift you can give yourself. You're tired, overwhelmed, burnt out, isolated. It is a gift you can give to your tired, overwhelmed, burnt out, isolated self. If you can't commit to the year-long program, we also have a virtual weekend retreat called Mending with Gold. It's going to happen on March 3rd through 5th. It is a weekend-long opportunity to connect with the why and how of your practice, incorporating many of the themes from our year-long program. All info, including a link to apply, is in the show notes and at kintsugitherapistcollective.com. Or you can find a link to our website in the Living in This Queer Body Instagram bio. And in perfect alignment with the theme of radical friendship, we have a duet featuring Zena Sharman and Hannah McGregor. In this lovely conversation, we hear Hannah and Zena talk about caring ferociously, macho homemaking, living as a committed spinster, work as a trauma response, and domestic embodiment. Hannah McGregor is an academic podcaster and author living on the traditional and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tusleil-Waututh First Nations. She co-hosts the podcast, Which Please, a critical rereading of the Harry Potter series, and she is the author of A Sentimental Education. Hannah's favorite duet is The Confrontation from Les Miserables by Colm Wilkinson and Philip Quast. Look out for Hannah's new writing. It promises to be a queer feminist reading of Jurassic Park. And Zena Sharman is a writer, speaker, strategist, and LGBTQ plus health advocate. She is the author of three books, including The Care We Dream Of, Liberatory and Transformative Approaches to LGBTQ plus Health, and the Lambda Literary Award-winning anthology, The Remedy, Queer and Trans Voices on Health and Healthcare. Zena's favorite duet is Stay. Rihanna featuring Mickey Echo. On to the duet and please wear a mask. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Zena. How are you? I'm delighted to be in conversation with you and to be a duet. Although we were just saying before we started recording that we're both Geminis. So my hypothesis is that this is actually a quartet. <laughs> That's incredible. I love that when we get together, we're a quartet. Um, I immediately want to start figuring out like which vocal parts we're singing, but that might be a little too inside baseball for this early in the conversation. But I well, would really love to start with this with this opening prompt and ask you what it's feeling like to be in your body these days. When I was thinking about this question earlier, I had a very micro moment of domesticity about mm. it, which was I am a parent of three small children who I'm co-parenting with three other people. And the reason this is relevant is I had changed out of my socks that I had really only been wearing for a few hours because there was already food stuck to my socks <laughs> from our tiny babies dropping food all over the floor. Oh. And then I put on another pair of socks just before we started recording and then realized I had stepped in new and different 
food that was also <laughs> on my kitchen floor. So right. part of what I was feeling was, what does it mean to be in this body that's in relationship with so many other bodies in mm. this domestic space that we share? And I also continue to feel just the last bits of this one of many winter colds that has been moving mm. through our family this fall and this winter. So still feeling a little bit of that kind of hanging around in my lungs, uh, even though I'm, I'm mostly well otherwise. So definitely uh, noticing the energy of this moment because we're recording close to the time of the winter solstice and feeling really ready to, to wind down and to slow mm. down. Uh, and, and just being in the space of my embodiment and sharing this this space with you. So does does solstice feel different with um your thousand babies? Like does that <laughs> does the time of year resonate differently when there's children involved in the celebration? It does in the sense that part of what our family is trying to do is to help our children learn how to be attuned to these mm -hmm. kinds of transitions that happen mm -hmm. through the year and like what does it mean to notice the long rich darkness of these nights and the shortness of the days how can we come together and celebrate the return of the light and even at the simplest level like what does it mean as we'll do in a few days to gather with our community and be around a fire and mm -hmm. sing songs and you know nothing elaborate but um, I think there there is that element of of inviting them into being with the the shifts and the seasons and the shifts and the rhythms and cadences of our days. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love the way that sort of experiences can become like heightened in a really pleasurable way when you are teaching or sharing them. I mean, it's one of the reasons I love teaching so much is that it sort of takes this thing that might be sort of internal and then and then turns it out and sort of offers it as a gift to other people. And I always find that a really pleasurable way to like re-experience things I already know. Yeah, absolutely. So Hannah, I'm going to turn the question back to you. What does it feel to like to be in your body these days? You know, I am feeling so good. And it's a it's a goodness that feels complex to me. So I am a professor. Um, I just got tenure uh this spring and so i'm on sabbatical and my sabbatical began in september it's a full year long and for folks who don't know sabbatical is a year where you get leave from like it's referred to as study leave um so you get leave from your teaching responsibilities and your service responsibilities so that you can focus exclusively on your research and so what that has looked like for me is that I am writing a book about a queer feminist reading of Jurassic Park, which is incredibly fun. And the other thing that it looks like is that I am getting so much more sleep than I normally get. And I very vividly remember a conversation I had with Yuzina like maybe four years ago where I was saying that I was so tired all the time and I feel like my body really wants like nine to 10 hours of sleep and that that's absurd because that's too much sleep. I can't have that. That's I have things to do. I can't sleep for 10 hours. Ridiculous. Uh, and you very gently were like, maybe it's worth considering the sort of internalized ableism that's telling you that you are not allowed to have the rest that you need. And so my my sabbatical experiment has been to figure out what my body and my sort of body mind feels like when I actually just shuffle off that shame and just get as much sleep as I actually want. And the answer is that I feel incredible. And then in turn, immediately start feeling guilty because sabbatical is such a a wild, extraordinary privilege that like there's academia, I think, is the only job that gives you something like this. And tenure track jobs in academia are 
disappearing rapidly. Tenure has disappeared in most other countries. And so I've got just this unbelievable rare jewel. And so I'm trying to sort of feel my way through that guilt and think a little bit more about what does feeling rested and well mean for my capacity to give back to my community? Like even just in the small ways of like, I have so much more capacity for friends who are in crisis. Like I have so much more capacity to listen, to be with people, to, you know, come over and help out if something comes up. Um, Cause like this energetic capacity that, that makes me feel both amazing and then also <laughs> guilty for having it um, is also like when I sort of respin that, like a really like kind of a gift that I can give back to my people. Um, but it's complicated. It's weird to feel great and also guilty about feeling great. It makes me think about the really important political and cultural interventions of people like Trisha Hersey of mm. the NAP ministry. And it definitely makes me feel curious about what's underneath that guilt mm -hmm. and why there needs to be that expectation which I understand as someone like you, who also in many ways was socialized inside academia as a younger person, uh, and of course, inside capitalism and white supremacy and ableism and, and settler colonialism. Um, but like why rest has to immediately be transmuted into productivity mm. or into some kind of making or doing as opposed to being something that is inherently worthy and good and valuable in and of itself, including as a source of joy and pleasure. Mm, yeah, I love that. It is so that 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 shying away from pleasure for pleasure's sake for me is entangled with all of those things that you named, right? The sort of um, profound workaholism that undergirds academia you know, the, the structure of this of this industry is one in which it's it's designed to make you feel that you are never doing enough. Um, and, and that's a sort of deliberate design around there's no clear expectations for you for for, you know, tenured professors for tenure track professors academically. Um, nobody ever tells you how much work you need to be doing, how many things you need to publish how many grants you need to get. It's just as much as you possibly can and will tell you if it's not enough, which obviously creates this atmosphere in which everybody's just kind of frantically doing as much work as they possibly can. And it has been for me a really valuable um, form of mentorship to model to the younger academics who I work with that it is possible to do this job in a way that is energetically sustainable. So I am probably one of the, <laughs> I was about to say least hardworking academics. That's not true, but I, I genuinely work like 40 hour work weeks. I don't work evenings, I don't work weekends. And that's incredibly rare in academia, almost unheard of. And I used to have shame around that because it made me look unserious. Um, my PhD supervisor once told me that hobbies were a sign of weakness of mind. Um, like you, if, if you need to fill your time with busy work, that means that you don't have the intellectual staying power to just be thinking really hard about theory at all hours of the day. Um, yeah, so like it wasn't even like tacit socialization. It was very explicit, like, oh, you're doing a hobby? Hmm, sounds like something an unserious person would do. I was once at a conference and was talking about Game of Thrones with another grad student and a professor turned to me and was like, how do you have time to be watching television? Don't you have a dissertation to write? Like that, that kind of thing. So there's definitely a piece of that throughout the sort of feeling of rest is rest is not okay. And like I said, modeling to people who I'm mentoring 
that rest is okay and that you can actually do this job successfully while having really clear boundaries around it and being a full human, not just a brain in a ugly beige office. Um, has been really, really valuable to me as sort of part of my my feminist work. Um, and also, when I think about the work of somebody like Trisha Hersey, say, her intervention is very specifically about the rest of Black women's bodies. And so when I think about how I feel in my body, part of being in my body is being in a white body in a white supremacist culture and always trying to um, feel that at an embodied level, what that means about the way that I move through the world, what that means about the pleasures and joys that I have access to. And so it so often becomes the sticking point for me as I'm like, oh, I'm feeling so much pleasure right now. And then I'm like, okay, pleasures are not always good. Right. They're not there. There's some particularly white pleasure often comes at the expense of people of color. Um, and so I always have this kind of suspicion of my own pleasure, the sort of this this desire to sort of stop and consider it instead of just being like, yeah, feeling good. It makes me think about. Something that I try to sit with often as another white person. And to me, that's about like where and how might I continue becoming comfortable with my own discomfort. Mm. And, and I mean this as a specific kind of discomfort, right? Not the kind of discomfort that becomes about, you know, tolerating a kind of physical pain that I could shift, you know, if I were able mm -hmm. to, to make, um, different choices or interventions on my my physical um, situation in that moment, but more about like, how do we become discerning about our comfort, discerning about our pleasure, discerning about what feels easeful so that it's not always about necessarily for me reaching for comfort or reaching for ease and that there is something distinctive perhaps about pleasure and this feels like a partially formed thought to me. So I'm, as I'm saying this, I definitely want to acknowledge it's not something that I feel like I've been able to articulate for myself, mostly to acknowledge I appreciate some of the tensions and complexities that you're pointing to. And I think some of it is also reflecting on my own ongoing trajectory of working still too hard too much of the time, mm. despite now more than 20 years of trying to learn how to be in my body um, and thinking about my experiences of being raised by a single mother who was a survivor of very complex trauma for whom work was a coping strategy, work was a trauma response. And yeah. the way that her work took shape was in art making, community organizing, um, doing work with other survivors. And so I really feel like I very much learned that at such an early age, like the kitchen table was also my mom's office in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think about it now as a parent uh, in that I am often a body in motion, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there was a phrase I used earlier this year. Um, it was when our, our twins who are eight months old, when they were still quite small, maybe about a month old, and I really felt myself doing what I was kind of jokingly describing as I wasn't sure if I was service topping or service bottoming our entire household, <laughs> uh, but I was engaging in what I called a femme praxis of macho homemaking, where mm. I was really leaning into like the best of my ability to vigilantly and, and one might say hypervigilantly attuned to the needs mm -hmm. of the entire household. My capacity to, to carry mental load is very high. And I felt really satisfied and very intentional about what I was doing uh, and, and that it wasn't necessarily a sustainable long-term pattern for me in terms of how I was showing up for my family, yet it felt intensely pleasurable to me mm -hmm. to be able to be a doer in the ways I was being a doer at a time when 
two of my co-parents in particular were really intensely involved in the reproductive labor of caring for two tiny babies, including feeding them from their bodies. And thinking about what does it mean to be a body in motion when I don't want my children to only think of me as the parent who's always cleaning or tidying or doing in the background. Mm -hmm. And so they often are an an unconscious intervention in the sense that, you know, they don't know that they're doing this for me. (laughs) They they invite me into play, you know, and Mm -hmm. that that is a particular kind of embodied presence that I feel like in some ways I've had to relearn or learn differently in adulthood. Mm -hmm. Um, And it feels like a really important offering in my life. And I, I say that in part because I think of you as a friend and a loved one in my life and in my family's life who, although you don't have kids in your life, intimately, you're not parenting or caregiving. Mm-hmm. I see you as being an adult who so fully is so fully present with children. And mm-hmm. that feels like an element of your capacity for presence and play that I really I love and I appreciate so much. Yeah, I I love I am, you know, a a. a committed spinster. That's a very important part of my life is that I am a, a, you know, fat queer witch who lives alone um, and is constantly trying to lure children over um, because I love kids and I love having kids in my life. Uh, I find it joyful both to spend time with children and also to witness my friends being parents and caregivers is a very particular kind of pleasure that I I didn't anticipate when I was younger and having a lot of anxiety about being left behind when my friends had kids. Um, but instead, you know, rather than being left behind, I've sort of realized that it's really extraordinary to to watch the way that my my friends become parents. And also it rules because the person that you love has now... <laughs> introduced into your life another person and it's like ah more people to love that rules um but i i don't think i (laughs) i realized this about myself fully until uh i was visiting with some very dear friends um uh, out on the east coast uh who i have been sort of doing long visits with for most of their kiddos life uh though I have not seen them for four years, which is very hard. Um, Their kiddo who is now eight, I think, um, reassures me that we are connected by a string that ties our hearts together, which has made me cry many times. Anyway, I am going to see them all in February and I am going to cry so much. Uh, But... I was playing with this kiddo uh, and we were pretending we were in the ocean and we were pretending to be mermaids and we were like sitting on rocks and like swimming around. And her mom commented to me that this was a real treat for her because for for their kid, because um, her parents, my friends, are not whimsical people. (laughs) And she just presented this not as a failing, not as a critique of herself, just as a reality of who they are as parents. They're very loving. They're very kind. They're very attentive and present. And they're not whimsical. They just aren't. And so they were like, oh, but you're so whimsical. And I was like, I am whimsical. That is true about I'm damn right silly. I absolutely love it. And if a kid comes up to me and is like, this thing I'm holding is a pie now when we are opening a bakery i'm like let's do it immediately you're all in i'm all in hannah you are the reason i own a really great fairy costume just (laughs) circling back to whimsy and tenure because your tenure celebration party which i in my mind and i don't mean this in a in a pro marriage way but it was my mental equivalent of going to your wedding and so I invested appropriately in in the purchase and and curation of an outfit. Uh, you are the reason I own a very, I think, quite great silver and and lavender fairy costume that yeah. my kids also are were really into, and that I did get to reuse at Halloween, though uh, not to the great effect that I did at your party. 
Oh, it was such a, you, you showed up so powerfully for that party. I did throw myself a tenure party. Um, and the theme was gay fairy chic and the way in which my queer community was like, oh, you want to dress like gay fairies? No problem. Absolutely zero problem. Here we are. We've got, oh, and two of my friends made me custom lavender dragon wings that matched my dress. Like people showed up so hard for it. And it was such a joy for me to be like, oh, look at this incredible community who see me in the fullness of my, hi, I just got tenure. Please everybody dress up like a fairy and are just like, yeah, of course. I mean, I knew I was at the right party as I was coming towards your gathering in the park when I saw a dog in a rainbow tutu. <laughs> and I will say that there was a point when someone stopped by our gathering to ask whether this was actually a Burning Man get together, <laughs> uh, which I understand why they would make that assumption, though it was not. Um, Hannah, I'm going to ask mm. you a question. This is a pivot, but it's a connected pivot. Okay. Gemini's. Mm -hmm. So have a book which I love it's called a sentimental education and one of the things you write about it which you anchor really in your relationship with your mom yet I also see it so interwoven in the things you've talked about already which is so much about care and relationality for your community for your people right and you talk about this notion of of what you call ferocious care or caring mm. ferociously and mm. that resonated so strongly for me as a femme in particular you mm. know and, and i know that that's a, a really important point of connection between us and i would love to to draw that thread into our conversation so tell tell me more about what ferocious care means to you and and why does it matter mm. so for me it's been a way of let's say queering an ethics of care and and what i mean by that so you know an ethics of care is is already this feminist intervention into the question of ethics which is a question of how we ought to be treating one another and an ethics as like a philosophical field has been dominated by white men whose answers tend to be quite theoretical about like well you need to have a sort of practical orientation towards what what is the thing that is the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And these are frameworks that tend to really justify some pretty horrific politics. Um, uh, you know, it's like deeply eugenicist politics, um, deeply racist politics. And, and an ethics of care is this feminist intervention that says our ethical responsibility is to care for one another. Um, to, to form networks of care, to make sure that the people who would be left behind are not left behind, but are, but are, are held up um, by their communities. And that has, has always really drawn me. Um, and also an ethics of care and the sort of feminist history of the use of care has some sinister aspects to it including the way in particular that white women have deployed care as a strategy of furthering white supremacy um, by, by claiming to be caring for people who they are in fact harming, right? And so, so my go-to example is the way that, that white women dominate um, the social work industry, uh, which is often doing things under the guise of care, such as um, taking children away from their families, disproportionately indigenous children, um, black children, children from working class families. Uh, and there is a long history of the sort of abduction of children from racialized families in the name of care for those children. And so, you know, while I feel the value of care, I also see how under this sort of sickly sweet cloying guise of um, I'm just trying to help you, it can in fact be incredibly harmful. Um, and as I was, I was thinking this through and I was thinking about the kind of care my mother modeled to me. Um, my mother died when I was 16 and had been sick with breast cancer for the eight years prior to that. And so was somebody who who lived a very intense, a short and intense life. 
I think, um, and whose response to the shortness of her own life and to the intensity of an experience of having cancer for eight years um, and then of, you know, of dying quite young was to turn to the world with a sort of ferocity of, um, I don't have a lot of time. And so I'm not going to be civilized or well-behaved about what I want to put into the world. Um, she was like my beloved cat, a little bit feral, but in a, in a really beautiful way. And that, that ferocity for me, that way of saying I'm showing up with care, but with a care that is explicitly politicized, a care that is um, disinterested in civility or pleasantness, um, that is not wrapped up in these sort of gendered notions of what it means to be caring or tender or sweet, which are all sort of gendered expectations um, that I have never been able to fulfill because I'm not a gentle, soft-spoken, sweet, easygoing person. I'm a loud, big, angry, hugely feeling-filled person. And so for me, the sort of caring ferociously is this way to say, like, I'm going to value care, but that care is always going to be oriented towards collective liberation, ferociously oriented towards collective liberation. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what caring ferociously is for me. It makes me think about something. I don't remember exactly how you worded it in the book, but um, the way that I am paraphrasing it now is that your own softness isn't inherently radical, but it can become a weapon if if you point it in the right direction. Yeah. And that that resonated with me. You know, I mean, I I think a lot about certainly in my own life, like what does fem care praxis look mm. like? Mm -hmm. Which which is a place where I have learned, you know, through now more than 20 years uh, in queer community and, and certainly very much in femme community, like what does it mean to care ferociously? Um, and it makes me think of a, a tweet I saw. I think this was from S.C. Dillon a, a long time ago, but the words stay in my mind, which, as I recall, it said, a butch will help you move. A femme will help you move a body. <laughs> And I was like, uh-huh, yep, that's about right. You know, and I and I really feel like I have that kind of ferocity for the people I love, you know, and 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 think about like what does it mean to put that care into practice in really tangible ways. And, you know, another one of the ways I know my own love manifests, which is very much a function of of me being my mother's daughter, is my care takes shape as preparedness. No, mm. I am the one who says, hey, do you have your will? Do you have your healthcare proxy? Mm. You know, do you have this necessary paperwork that is going to be in place to help you navigate what could potentially for you or your loved ones be a really stressful and overwhelming time? It's about saying, okay, well, we need to do community emergency planning, you know, not just for our family, but with other queer and trans people in the community, you know, how do we think together about how we can collectively respond to the kinds of crises that might hit? And I know when you when you talk about the feminist ethics of care, you know, some of the places that that I've really um, appreciated that the interventions from, particularly as someone, you know, who's my own graduate work, focused on care work. And so I spent a lot of years as a younger person reading about and researching and studying and thinking about care. Mm -hmm. And that was a time when I hadn't been taught about, and, and I think even at that time, it was just really nascent. I didn't know anything about disability justice, you know, and mm -hmm. I think about the really important interventions, you know, like I, of people like Leah Lakshmi Piepsnesamarsinga, like in Leah's new book, The Future is Disabled. Um, they really talk so much about this notion of this very much disability justice inflected care futurism, 
which Mm -hmm. for me feels simultaneously like really visionary, but also really tangible and really practical. Um, And there's another fabulous book that I read recently called Just Care by Akemi Mm -hmm. Nishida, which looks at care, again, really thinking about, you know, from a disabled and a racialized and an intersectional lens, both looking at um, disabled-led care collectives, but also the relationships between people who are receiving care from paid care attendants through Medicaid in the United States, the ways in which care can operate um, both as a top-down site of oppression, as you've gestured to, as well as a space of relationality, solidarity, and transformation. Mm-hmm. And then I think about the work of folks like Hill Malatino in the book Trans Care and in some of Hill's other writing, where I think Hill is so thoughtful about the notion and, and the experiences of like the kinds of care practices that that grow within and are co-created and continually created within communities where mm-hmm. we are often needing to care in the face of violence and, and structural oppression, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just exciting for me to think about the radical potential of care mm-hmm. and in ways as as you pointed to that push back against simplicity or sentimentality Mm-hmm. but really sit between the visionary and the pragmatic, you know, and that that feels like a, a space I want to be traversing and experimenting with. Well, you describe right there in that sort of, you know, traversing in that space around care, what you're up to in The Care We Dream Of, your most recent book, which is so much about both um, creating space to dream big, about what the world would look like if we were all genuinely cared for in the ways that we need to in, that we need and want to be not in the ways that the state tells us we should be um but also rooted in the pragmatism of you know what how do we actually get there or what are people actually doing um and one of the things that i love so much about that book you know it started off as a kind of like You've edited anthologies previously. I think you're an incredible editor and curator and 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 bringer together of voices. And this was, you know, you're like, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be my essays about care. And then immediately you began to bring in these other contributors. Um, and I would really love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, why when you're thinking about the care we dream of, uh, why it was so important to bring in those other voices um, rather than sort of centering that book exclusively around your own experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the the we was always integral to the conceptualization of that project, right? And and I mean, I, I think like often about what does it mean for me as a person who is white, this gender, you know, highly educated, now in my adulthood, you know, very comfortably middle class, upper middle class. I don't exactly know where I, I sit there, but I know that I am far more financially privileged, certainly, than I was as a kid growing up in poverty. You know, mm-hmm. in my current iteration of my body mind, I'm not a person who's disabled, right? Like there are a million ways in which I am living an immensely privileged life. And so the care I dream of, that that is not. That is not a dream I would want to be bringing forward without the rich diversity, accountability, creativity of bringing in many voices and perspectives like that. That feels vital to me from an imaginative standpoint and and an offering to community around the range of possibilities that are available to us. Not that that book even is a complete set of possibilities, right? It's more an invitation into further dreaming. Mm. Um, And I think it's so much about, for me, I guess, like showing up right-sized in the work. Like it's a different book for me in that I was writing long form essays for the first time after having edited or co-edited two previous anthologies. So that was in and of itself, a journey of finding voice and finding a way to kind of take up space differently in a book than I had in the past yet simultaneously was so deeply rooted in community and relationship and working with a really amazing community of people who brought in their own ideas and perspectives. And, and that to me is, is 
so integral to why that book is able to do what it does. And I and I hope importantly to to spark more dreaming because mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day when we're imagining like what liberatory care might look and feel like in each of our lives and communities that's so rooted in in place, in relationship, in in identities. Yeah. Yeah, I mean and the way you 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 frame that as as sparking more dreaming also immediately makes me think about the way that you've talked about the book as a spell as sort of, you know, doing this magic by dreaming new possibilities into the world, which is an inherently magical act. I'm thinking a lot right now about, so I am writing a book right now. And I know that, that Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Semarasina, who you, who mentioned earlier has, in addition to just being a incredible writer has also been your writing coach. Is that is it is coach the right word? Are we are are they are they coach? Definitely, we we shared a lot of uh, academic coach Taylor memes during the <laughs> during the process of creating the care we dream of, and yeah, I feel really so so honored uh, to be able to work with Leah in that way. They continue to be a really important teacher and mentor for me. And you and you talked when you were speaking to me of what that coaching looked like. That a lot of it was about sort of bringing ritual and magic into the actual process of writing, um, which is to sort of circle us back to to bringing pleasure into what we do, such a exciting intervention into the way that we so often, I mean, in academia for sure, but I also think more generally talk about writing as an inherently unpleasant experience, right? The sort of popular imagination of the writer is somebody who is in some sort of creative agony, wrenching something out of their soul, slogging away over a keyboard um, and reframing that as uh, an intentional and magical and pleasurable activity was a real, you know, when you shared that with me, I was like, oh, pleasure, huh? Okay. Huge if true. Um, and it's something I've been really working on in the in the or not working on, hard to say, in the writing of my current book is to just try to really lean into the pleasure of it, of it being fun and a little silly. I mean, it's a book about Jurassic Park. It's a little silly and not feeling worried or ashamed of it being inadequately serious. Um Probably my most whimsical book yet, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, and I really appreciate that because it makes me think about the new book that I'm working on, which is mm-hmm. in a far more nascent stage than yours. And uh, it's a memoir. And so that that's different, right, in terms of finding my voice and telling another part of my own story. But more specifically, and this was actually something Leah helped me figure out, and I think importantly to be able to name is I realized, oh, this book is going to be hard Mm. and it needs time because I Mm. was trying to force it into a set timeline where I had a deadline and a clear pathway for finishing. And what I realized is this book can't have a deadline yet. It needs time to unspool. I need time to feel into the work and time to find ways in which to make the process pleasurable while also doing, you know, the kind of excavation I think it's going to require. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about bringing this conversation to a close. And I wonder, Hannah, if there's anything else you want to weave into this duet as we, as we, I mean, I don't think we could do a a, a four part harmony, and and frankly, I don't even feel ready for a two part harmony because unlike you, I've never sung in a choir. However, <laughs> I do want to know what else do we want to say before we finish up? I mean, to end on that on that choral note, um, I am thinking. I have been thinking a lot lately about you know I was raised by folk musicians. And so I was raised by musicians, yes, and I am a musician, yes. And the particular musical tradition I was raised in is very much the rise up and sing tradition, very much the campfire tradition, which is to say a space in which music is for everyone. 
music. You do not, there aren't people who are musicians and people who aren't. There aren't good singers and bad singers. There aren't, there might be more experienced singers. There might be more trained singers. But that idea of music as a thing that every single one of us is capable of has been so central to so much of my understanding of, of the work I do in so many different capacities. And again, brings me back to that, that orientation towards embodied joy and pleasure, because that is what music is for me. It's not about, you know, achieving a particular external goal. Um, it's not necessarily about, you know, getting those four part harmonies perfectly tuned. Um, I don't mind a kind of janky harmony. Uh, my dad always says close enough for folk singers, which I find very funny. Um, but there is this, this sense of you make music cause it feels good. And if that's true about music, what else is it true about? What else, what else can we sort of let go of this desire to, to achieve in a particular way and say like, I'm just doing this cause it feels good. I love that. And it makes me think about something our older kid often invites us to do. And, and the us in this case is, is you know, our daughter and her four co-parents and someday the babies will join in. Mm. She loves to do a jam. Oh and yeah. We have a little kid xylophone and a kid drum and a shaker. And we just, we jam and it's loud and it's raucous. And when you come visit us soon, let's jam oh. together. Oh, you know, you know, I'm bringing my <laughs> ukulele and we are jamming. <laughs> Maybe.